0: On this episode of China Unscripted, how repression feeds off technology, what the U.N. can actually do about China, and how to keep up the fight for human rights. Welcome to China Unscripted, I'm Chris Chappell.
1: I'm Shelley Zhang.
0: And I'm Matt Gnaister. And joining us today is award-winning human rights lawyer, David Matas. David, thank you for joining us again. Thanks for inviting me. I want to congratulate you uh for recently winning the Global Humanitarian Leader of the Year award for your work exposing organ harvesting in China. That's that's great news.
2: Thank you very much. Yeah.
0: And that was that was from the group Canadians in Support of Refugees in Dire Need. I assume they're not talking about Americans.
2: Um <laughs> well uh, i'll leave that for you to decide <laughs> okay
0: <laughs> very politic well so obviously you've been talking we know you on this show as as the, you know, the, the man who has been researching organ harvesting in china but more recently you've been very outspoken about uh the coronavirus and um how the world needs to respond in the face of it uh so so what what are some of the ways you think the world and governments around the world should respond to the coronavirus pandemic
2: the uh, coronavirus, uh, I mean, it presents a new problem, but it it also impacts on old problems, and in some cases exacerbates them. Uh, the, I think we see a lot of uh, bigotry that's uh, uh, associated with the coronavirus, and and a lot of that bigotry is is not new, but it just develops a new vocabulary and a new form because of the uh, coronavirus. And uh, so I think we have to respond to the new forms, the old, old bigotry takes. That That's one facet. Another uh, facet of the coronavirus is, uh, of course, that there's a lot more shutdown, a lot less in-person contact, a lot more electronic contact. Uh, con- contact. And, and the... Uh, The the rise of electronic contact also imposes new problems like Zoom bombing and um, the uh, uh, increased uh, social media hate and the problems with uh, social media and the internet in terms of absence of control and and, and as a a, a factor for propagation of hatred is not new with COVID. But again, it's been exacerbated by COVID so that uh, as a result, we have to draw our attention or or refocus or give uh, our attention or give increased priority to the problems that the Internet poses through the spying and uh, and and false news and propagation of hatred that uh, may have existed before, but assumes a new dimension with COVID. So those are a couple of things I would mention. Yeah, and there's
0: there is a lot there. Um, Obviously, as you mentioned, the Internet being a uh, forum for people to uh, propagate racism and whatnot. Uh, Also, uh, we've seen how the Chinese Communist Party has used the internet to spread false information about the coronavirus pandemic, that it came from Italy or from India or from America. So yeah, it's interesting that this is sort of bringing to a head a lot of issues that were simmering under the surface, but never really got the attention they deserved.
2: Yes, I think that's true.
0: In particular, it really revealed um, how dependent the world is on China supply chains, Uh, people seem to be surprised that all of the personal protective equipment was made in China.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's not only uh, the dependence on supply chains, uh, which is a problem um, for any country that doesn't produce everything internally. It's also uh, there is misrepresentation and shoddy workmanship, uh, which is a second problem. Third problem is, well, there's use of forced labor in China. There's uh, a problem of bringing, importing goods from China, particularly from Xinjiang, uh, where uh, there's a a good chance that forced labor is being used. uh, There's the unreliability of the Chinese commitments. uh, There's the politicization of Chinese commitments. uh, There's the false information. It's a whole sequence of problems.
3: Well, let's jump into the forced labor a bit because we want this to be a fun podcast. Tell us a, a bit about what the latest we're seeing in terms of forced labor in Xinjiang and how that relates to products that are being exported.
2: We've got a lot of uh, anecdotal information. We've got satellite information. Uh, the uh, And we've got some react- reaction by governments. There's a, a a proposed legislation, which is going through uh, Congress right now, where uh, the goods from Xinjiang would be presumptively uh, produced by forced labor and therefore banned from entry. It's a rebuttable presumption, but there has to be evidence to rebut the presumption. And in Canada, uh, actually through this group, the Canadian support of refugees in dire need, I've made a similar request to the government of Canada that they... Right now, the, the, the customs tariff says no, no goods by forced labor that they presumptively uh, state that from changing it is forced labor unless there's uh, something to rebut that presumption. They have said so far they're not going to do that. They want to take directions from global affairs and uh, well, we're still pursuing that. But I, I think there's a widespread appreciation that this is a real problem in changing and the question is what to do about it. Um, well, so going
0: back to the coronavirus, my question is, uh, we've really seen, uh, so in, in your work, exposing organ harvesting, a uh, big problem has been the international medical community sort of taking China's side, being very in bed with the Chinese Communist Party. Mm-hmm. And that really came back to bite us, uh, in the coronavirus, like how we saw the World Health Organization. Uh, wasn't there some study that if they had, uh, uh worked a little harder, if, if, they got the Chinese Communist Party to actually be honest about what was happening a few weeks earlier, like 95 percent of this wouldn't have happened. Yes. Have, have you seen any kind of awakening in the medical community that maybe we shouldn't be trusting the Chinese Communist Party?
2: Uh, there is, a, I would say, a difference. Uh, I mean, we're dealing with different components of the medical community here. Uh, with with organ transplant, we were dealing with the Transplantation Society and Uh, The uh, transplant profession, I would say, uh, has been split uh, on on this issue about what to deal with China with the majority or the leadership or many of it, unfortunately, taking the side of China or saying, basically, we're not going to investigate uh, as long as they say they're going to reform, we're happy. And that's the end of it. Uh, And there is a minority that takes the opposite point of view, um, and uh, and and I know some of these people, and so it's it's not a uniform problem. With the coronavirus, it's been a bit of a different issue because the World Health Organization is an intergovernmental body and china is an important component of it and they don't have a compliance assessment mechanism maybe they should but uh they have a tendency not to want to step on the toes of any government uh just because of the nature of what that government that organization is and they certainly were much too slow to react and much too easy to take the side of china in the world health organization but I'm not sure you can blame the medical profession for that. I think that's more the UN bureaucracy, uh, where where China has uh, disproportionate influence uh, and 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 within the UN system, the UN bureaucrats are very reluctant to criticize China about anything. But that strikes me as um, well, I mean, obviously, they're both problems, but they're not exactly the same problem. True. Uh, and this is
0: something that comes up a lot. I mean, China sits on the UN Human Rights Council it's insane and uh, i i hear this a lot from people like how what can be done about china's outsized influence over the united nations i mean they sit on the security council so i don't know if there's anything that can be done but it makes the u.n kind of useless
2: the uh I wouldn't say completely useless. Uh and and I mean we went through this uh before uh with the League of Nations where uh there there was a tendency for countries to drop out because they didn't like what was going on and uh it made the league kind of useless. The UN obviously is limited where you've got uh China and and I mean it's far from the only undemocratic country that's involved. Uh France uh Russia is a problem, and Russia also has a veto and the security council and uh and and uh the uh and, and there are many other countries that um they don't present the same problem as China, but they're happy to go along with China for because they support each other in terms of their non-democratic views. Uh, and there are some mechanisms uh that are useful. Within the UN, the expert mechanisms, uh, although China, uh, because they're independent from the geopolitical uh, structure, the expert mechanisms, there's the theme mechanisms and the treaty mechanisms. The, the, China tends not to sign on the treaties or to exempt itself from anything in terms of compliance assessment. But the theme mechanisms are a lot, are a lot more broad ranging. China has tried to get involved through the Human Rights Council in. Deciding who would become the thematic experts, uh, but they haven't completely distorted that system. So that system is, is, is sometimes useful. Um, and, and also, I mean, you have the universal periodic review and uh, you do have the opportunity uh, at the, the Human Rights Council for All the member states of the UN to speak up, not just the members. Uh, And uh, at the UN, you may not get the vote you want, but you can certainly say whatever you want. And Mm -hmm. and, uh, nothing should uh, prevent the uh, democratic uh, rights-promoting countries from speaking up and and saying about China, the reality of China. Uh, I mean, having a forum to do that, a global forum where China is sitting and listening, uh, albeit ignoring and insulting and attacking, is... is, um, is better than doing nothing, although obviously it's it's not <laughs> it's not ideal, and and there are all some of the international mechanisms uh, like the International Court of Justice. Uh, it, it's difficult to get there because China's opted out of mo- most of the mechanisms, but the International Criminal Court offers some prospect. Uh, I don't know if you've been following, but the uh, prosecutor pr- produces annual reports uh, of communications from uh, whomever and responses, and there has been some communications about China. China is not a party to the court treaty, but the court has juris- an, a jurisdiction uh, where a crime is committed on the territory of a state party, even if it's by a national of a non-state party. And uh, that form of jurisdiction has been used um, by the court against Myanmar, uh, which is not a state party, because uh, the crime of deportation has occurred not only in Myanmar, the Rohingya, but in Bangladesh, uh, where where the uh, Rohingya have been sent, and uh, that uh, and Bangladesh is a state party. So there was a complaint against or a communication to the prosecutor about China, uh, which said that the, that there's been deportations of Uyghurs from Tajikistan. And from Cambodia or Campuchia to China, in which the Chinese were involved in basically uh, requiring or imposing this deportation, and Tajikistan and Cambodia are are state parties, and trying to get China uh, prosecuted, or or the Chinese involved in this uh, deportation, prosecuted before the International Criminal Court. And the prosecutor said, Basically, give me more detail, give me more information. So uh, uh, there is an attempt now to collect that information. And who knows, maybe it'll succeed. And But I think each of these uh, individual efforts uh, are worthwhile. I also would say the um, United Nations is not the only multilateral uh, body uh, that can deal with this sort of issue. Right now... The Council of Europe has a uh, a treaty open for signature on uh, on uh, trafficking in human organs. Uh, and it's open to any country in the world that wants to sign it. It isn't just open to members of the Council of Europe. And, uh, and uh, that's one thing that I think uh, the United States could do, uh, Canada could do, countries that are not members of the Council of Europe sign on to that treaty and implement that treaty which would allow uh, or require states to penalize complicity in Chinese organ transplant abuse and uh, and other foreign uh, transplant abuse. So there's those sorts of options.
0: Well, so this international law kind of fascinates me, and this this ties into a lot of what you've been doing. Like, there's been more and more evidence about organ harvesting in China coming up. Uh, The China Tribunal, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about that later what can international law actually do to hold the chinese communist party accountable whether it's for organ harvesting or for uh making
2: them accountable for the coronavirus pandemic international law is not just uh, applied in international instances like the international criminal court or whatever it, it it is also applied in local courts uh through uh universal jurisdiction laws uh through uh, Magnitsky-type listing legislation uh, through civil suits as well as criminal suits. I think that one thing that any country could do is is apply its international law jurisdiction applied in domestic courts to deal with this sort of phenomenon, so that you could prosecute people in Canada or the UK or the US who are complicit in organ transplant abuse in China, that you could allow for civil lawsuits against people who have set up the system or or inflicted the system you could name the perpetrators under the magnitsky legislation so that uh they would be barred from entry their assets would be seized there's uh, a wide variety of these sorts of options which uh, should be in my view both considered and implemented.
0: so that would also include penalties for a citizen of a country going to china to get uh, organ transplants
2: Sure, uh, I mean, uh, it. it you, you would have to set up a system so they knew what they were doing. Mm-hmm. But my own view is, is is that the primary focus should not necessarily be the patients who uh, uh, may not be very well informed or thinking very clearly. Yeah, uh, and under a, a kind of a, a desperate situation. But uh, it, you have to look at the people who facilitate this sort of uh, uh, trans because there's brokers, there there's referring doctors. Uh, I mean, one thing that's very simple uh, uh, it would be simply a compulsory reporting system, so that you knew who was going and who was coming back. And, and we don't have that. I, I mean, we have some voluntary reporting systems, but I'm not aware of. Any, I mean, some countries are so small that uh, they just know from who shows up at the hospital who's done it. But uh, the, 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 as far as I know, there's no country that has a compulsory reporting system, and it should it should exist.
0: You know, you actually made a a better defense of the UN than I've heard in a long time. So this is where I think international organizations like the UN can come in handy by being able to be a forum where these issues can be discussed, where at least some kind of uh, statement can be made condemning actions that then can be used by individual countries to affect law.
2: Yes, well, uh, uh, the UN is a lot better at setting standards than implementing them. Uh, and, and, and it's a, a lot better at articulating uh, ideals than pointing fingers. And uh, if you go to the UN to get them to criticize China, no matter how justifiable that criticism is, it's very difficult. But if you go to the UN and ask them to adopt a global standard of what should be done to prevent this or to do that, they're often quite prepared to do that, and 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 the Chinese, as far as they're concerned, uh, uh, I mean, you know, when it comes to human rights, um, I don't, uh, this is to a certain extent uh, good news. Is that everybody accepts it? I, I mean, uh, the uh, hypocrisy uh, is what <laughs> the the credit that uh, vice gives to virtue, and China will 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 not reject standards, they'll just say, I agree, fine, uh, they're perfectly all right, they just, we just aren't violating. Uh, and, and so so they're, they're not an obstacle to, uh, I would say generally, to overall um, acceptance of standards. They don't like reporting mechanisms, they don't like compliance mechanisms, they don't like enforcement mechanisms. But, it, you know, the standards themselves, they do not reject. And and so And so it is sometimes useful to get the UN to do that
0: that's a really good point actually that you know internationally human rights are considered important and the chinese communist party can't say we don't care about human rights Mm -hmm. what they have to do is is do some kind of uh redefining what human rights are that they define human rights as oh well we've lifted people out of poverty or you know don't look at xinjiang but uh, look at how many skyscrapers there are and so it's an interesting way to kind of force their hand to at least adopt certain language that the international community would prefer and in a way expose their own hypocrisy in doing
2: it. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: So this sounds like a very slow process in terms of trying to get accountability.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Well, I I mean, I've been working on human rights um, all my professional life and which is relatively long now. And uh, what I see over the course of the decades I've been working on it, that old violations disappear and new ones surface. Uh, I I mean, when I started uh, dealing in human rights, the phenomenon of Falun Gong didn't exist. The repression of Falun Gong certainly didn't exist. Uh, I I mean, we see violations in Xinjiang that that we used uh, not to see uh, and so on. But on the other hand, some of the issues that I worked on have completely disappeared, like apartheid in South Africa, I was I was very involved in that. And it's completely gone, and or, or the problems of the Soviet Union. Well, the Soviet Union disintegrated. Uh, uh, the uh, and uh, the, the the military dictatorship states in Latin America. They they they've pretty well all gone uh, as well. And so I, I think generally, uh, and you know I and frankly uh, I would uh, I, I hope I live to see the day where all the problems of communist China will disappear and. And, and the perpetrators are brought to justice. But I'm under no illusion that even if that all is resolved, there's going to be something else somewhere else, uh, that the struggle uh, uh, against uh, human rights violations is a never-ending struggle. It's not just slow, it's endless. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because what you're dealing with is human nature, and, and, and humans as a whole are not going to all of a sudden everywhere all turn completely good. I mean that's just not gonna happen.
0: well i wonder on that note do you have any like since you've been doing this so long do you have any insight on how these human rights issues keep coming up you know i i, I go about my day and i never have the urge to you know harvest somebody's organs for profit how do <laughs> how do these things keep happening
2: well i i don't think there's one genesis for every uh, simple explanation for um the uh, sequence of human rights uh, violations. But one thing that I have noticed, uh, which I think is generic in nature, is the interplay between new technology and new human rights violations. Uh, That that to a certain extent, we're always closing the barn door after the uh, horse's escape. Uh, uh, Because all technologies are morally neutral. And the people who develop them don't necessarily think of how they can be abused uh or or think as they development uh how, how um how they can prevent their abuse they don't even imagine the abuse I, I, I think that albert einstein was very important uh in terms of um the relationship between energy and mass uh and which eventually led to the creation of the atomic bomb and, and then the hydrogen bomb and, and he said Himself, um, if I knew what was going to happen with what I discovered, I would have remained a watchmaker, which he was before he went into physics. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see that with organ transplantation, the, the organ transplant, and people who developed organ transplant, uh, uh, transplantation, I'm sure never imagined that uh, political prisoners would be killed for their organs, that the technology would be used that way. You can see that with the internet, where I mean, the uh, the, the people who developed the internet were completely <clears throat> blindsided by the manipulation, the uh, the, the false news, the propagation of hatred the, uh, the, that that they have generated, or or that their, their their devices have generated. And the march of technology is going to continue, and and this blindsidedness, I I anticipate, will also continue.
0: That's that's a really interesting way to look at it. Um, what do you think about things like Hannah
2: Arendt's uh, banality of evil playing in, uh, a role in this? I, I mean, what she was dealing. with, I mean, uh, the, the phrase banality of evil is is, is that evil is very commonplace, very very ordinary, uh, unthought out, not philosophical. It's 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 not uh, uh, very much in the way of ideological. I think that's partly true. It's not completely true. I, I mean, uh, you can see in, in terms of uh, a communist ideology, uh, some of it is quite sophisticated. Uh, it, it, uh, it, it's it's wrong, uh, but it, it's not, I would say, dumb wrong. I mean, it it, it takes a bit of going through it to get out what's wrong with it. Uh, but if you look at the sort of the frontline perpetrators, and, and you start interviewing them, not i I've done a bit, but there's genocide scholars who've done a lot more and and they'll tell you that I mean sometimes you know it's just their job they haven't thought it through they've got the, the most confused idea of what they're, they're they're doing uh that uh and and so I think it's a combination of both they're, they're and I think it's worth addressing both uh that I think when it comes to uh confronting these, or, or, or if you're engaged in preventive action, you have to both get uh, the prevention down to a very basic level, but you also have to aim at a higher level as well, because there are people who are trying to set up the platform of the justification in a very sophisticated way, and, and you have to address both the, the sophisticated and the banal. So you mentioned you've interviewed people who have committed genocide. Well, I wouldn't say interviewed them, but I, I've dealt a lot with war criminals, and I've, I've read what they said, and I've seen what they said in courts. Uh, 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 but the genocide scholars have interviewed them, absolutely. They would be like the frontline shooters or whatever. And yeah, I've met scholars who've done that.
0: So you mentioned um, communist ideology, and and this is this is something I've wondered about. Um, it certainly has a long history of failing and being pretty horrible, and yet something about... That ideology seems persistent, and keeps coming back. Do you have any insights on that?
2: Well, obviously, for the Communist uh, Party of China, what matters to them is keeping in power. And, and, and uh, they hang on to communism because it, uh, it'd be pretty hard for the Communist Party to stay in power and denounce communism. <laughs> uh, so th- there's a kind of self interested play. But there's this whole – I mean, for people – and and there's also, of course, the fellow travelers, the people who feel they're going to benefit economically or their careers will advance uh, if they somehow go along with the communist Chinese. But you did get people who are straight, ideological committed, which are going back to Marx and Lenin and Trotsky and and, and that whole ideology of uh, anti-capitalism and oppression of the workers uh, and uh, this notion – That uh, Marx and and uh, and Engels said, uh, which is, "Workers of the world, unite! You have nothing to lose but your chains." That sort of ideology still persists, uh, and and you see it in a lot of of different ways, in a lot of different writings, uh, continuously, and it, um, I mean, it it feeds off to a certain extent. Income inequality, uh, and, uh, I mean, what you see uh, in, in the United States is a good example. There's huge uh, variations in income where the economy has grown, but the, uh, the minimum wage hasn't grown. Uh, and uh, so th- there's these kinds of e- economic diversities uh, and inequalities that attract people to the Marxist analysis. And obviously, there's a way of dealing with that, both ideologically and practically, uh, but it, it's it's just uh, a facet of the uh, kind of uh, intellectual panorama in front of us with which we have to deal.
0: Well, I hope this leads to some something a little optimistic. But so you've been working on organ harvesting uh, for <laughs> that's
3: optimistic <laughs>
0: for for a number of years. How have you seen that change? Is this going to become one of those issues that you've worked on that disappears? Is it heading in that direction or?
2: Well, uh, no. Uh, I mean, not right now. Uh, I wouldn't say it's disappearing now. In fact, it's getting worse uh, because right. uh, uh, what's happened is uh, what, it, 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 the repression of Falun Gong started in uh, 1999. The uh, large scale um, sourcing from Falun Gong was a year or two later, 2000-2001. And, and and it, it was a result of the Chinese having in their jails a huge Falun Gong population. There was, when Falun Gong was first repressed uh, in 1999, uh, the practitioners couldn't really understand why this was happening because it was and is a harmless set of exercises. I, I mean, it's like the India uh, government of India banning yoga. I mean, wh- why why would they do that? Uh, and So there was a lot of demonstrations basically saying Falun Gong is good and, you know, you just don't understand what Falun Gong is sort of thing. These demonstrations brought out uh, hundreds of thousands of people who were mostly uh, all arrested. Uh, And if they didn't recant and renounce and denounce their co-practitioners, they were kept in indefinite arbitrary detention. So this became a, a captive organ donor pool. But it was kind of static. Uh, I mean, there were continuing arrests over the years, but not in the same huge volume that there was in the early years with the the original demonstrations. And so that this captive organ bank over over the years, because the numbers that being sourced were, were you know tens of thousands every year, it, it uh, the, the number eventually got depleted. Ugh. And so what we've we seen more recently. Is the that kind of depletion is being compensated for by Uyghurs uh, who become a new kind of filling in the gaps in in, in the organ uh, forced organ donor supply chain through the depletion of the fallen Gong. Oh. This has become possible again through technology because the uh, because of the development of transplant technology, ischemic time or the time of an organ outside the body is greater now than it used to be. And when we started our work, uh, China didn't have a a national organ distribution system. Now they do. Uh, And so it's become a lot easier to do that. Um, And, and of course, we've got a whole new victim population. There's also uh, Tibetans and and the uh, house Christians uh, in in smaller numbers, uh, although I, I don't know if you followed this, but the, uh, the the Eastern Lightning or the Church of the Almighty God, they've just come up with a, a recent report that's been dealing with this issue as well. And I think it would be very difficult for the Chinese system to get off this because it's financing the whole health system. It's not just a, a moneymaker, it's an underpinning, which is part of the reason, I mean, part of the reason China got into it just was the technology was available, but it, it was also the reason was they'd started sourcing organs from prisoners, prisoners sentenced to death, and and then because of international pressure, they they kind of cut down on the number of death penalty cases, uh, and and therefore had fewer death penalty organs. Uh, and they shifted from I mean, even though they use the communist name, they don't use socialism. <laughs> Practically now, it's it's a capitalist economy with a communist label, uh, and. Uh, and they took a lot of money out of the health system as, as well as with a lot of other systems. And the result is that the health system basically compensated for the, uh, with the shift from socialism to capitalism and withdrawal of government funds to the health system. The health system compensated for that, replaced that funding with the the, the selling of organs.
0: But, but hold on, that can't be entirely considered capitalist because it is a state-run organ harvesting. So if, if the healthcare industry is being propped up by the state killing people for their organs, that, that, that isn't just a normal capitalist system.
2: Well, I wouldn't call the Chinese capitalist system a normal capitalist system, mm-hmm. far from it. But it, it's much more, it's capitalist in the sense it's, it's market-driven, it's 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 uh, supply and demand sort of thing. And, I mean, you could just see what happened with uh, the head of, head of Alibaba. He could make as much money as he wanted uh, as long as he doesn't criticize China as soon he starts criticizing China, he disappears. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's obviously not a normal capitalist system, but it's a type of capitalist system. And we do have hospitals that saying, you know, we uh, we couldn't keep our doors open if we weren't selling organs, or they didn't quite put it in those words, but uh, they, they, we couldn't keep our doors open if we didn't uh, engage in organ transplantation. That's what they would say. So, uh, you know, your question is, is this going to end? Well, uh, I, I, I don't see an immediate dynamic that's causing it to end uh it in in the short term this looks to be a continuing problem so So,
0: just just a second so that was not quite the message of hope i was hoping to get (laughs) let me (laughs) let me rephrase my question just a little (laughs) bit have you seen at least the international community become more aware of the issue a little less of oh that's just conspiracy theories that's not happening i want that message of hope (laughs)
1: <laughs> that doesn't sound very no. convincing. No.
2: Uh, yeah, I think this is the problem generally with international human rights violations that, um, and, and I've seen this over and over again, that it's not happening to me, it's not happening here, uh, I don't understand what's going on there, there's a, a a conflicting narrative and I'm not, I can't be bothered to sort it out or I can't figure out how to sort it out and And and, uh, that's not unique to uh, organ harvesting. I would say that's across the board and across the decades for foreign human rights violation. But, you know, if you're in China and you try to combat this problem, you're going to be a part of the problem. Gao Jisheng, who is a human rights lawyer in China, he says, you become a human rights advocate, you become a human rights victim. So it's only the outsiders who can deal with it, uh, like myself. I mean, I have no... Political or financial interests in China. I have no family contacts in China. I have no personal interests in China, uh, which uh, on one hand makes me quite free to act. But for most people, it also means, you know, why should I care? And so I think the problem is generally mobilizing people to care about these uh, violations. There was a, an ancient Greek philosopher called Solon, and, you know, several centuries BC he says, When will we get justice? people feel injustice who are not affected as badly as those who are affected
0: so that was several
2: thousand years ago and this is not hopeful (laughs) (laughs) well as i'm saying as i say we're dealing with a never i mean i wouldn't say with falun gong and organ harvesting that will end at some point but in terms of international human rights violations you know the issue is not is it going to disappear the issue is is it going to get better or worse and, and uh and i would say in the organ harvesting field at least internationally it's getting better in the sense that there's increased recognition there's uh, attempts at um, in in changing the law i mean some countries have changed their law like israel improved tremendously from sending almost everybody to sending almost nobody to china Taiwan has actually moved uh, uh, very well in the right direction. Uh, the uh, th- there's a few other jurisdictions where you can point to and say, sure, there's been improvement, and others where there there's attempts to improvement, but it, it's it's spotty. Uh, and uh, eventually, my own belief is, uh, and we can see this happening. There is a movement to a comprehensive um, uh, avoidance of complicity with what's happening in China. But in terms of China itself, uh, I mean, uh, that that remains to be <laughs> solved.
1: One thing that I found interesting is because organ harvesting was associated with with Falun Gong practitioners for so many years and kind of Falun Gong wasn't really taken seriously in a certain way as like a human rights problem by like the wider human rights community, because it was so it seemed so niche and hard to understand. Now with the Uyghur situation, like that's pretty much like the Uyghurs are kind of like the new Tibetans in the sense that in the 90s, everybody was like, you know, free Tibet and like knew about that. And, you know, now you have even like the U.S. government saying that what's happening is a genocide in Xinjiang. So it's kind of more well known. Do you think as the Uyghur population becomes, you know, kind of like, as you said, they're kind of replacing Falun Gong? um, in terms of being the victims of organ harvesting just because the Falun Gong numbers are dropping and the Uyghur numbers are going up? Do you think as the Uyghurs become uh, victims of organ harvesting that organ harvesting as a whole will become more well-known about?
2: Possible. Uh, the I, I mean, one of the problems uh, uh, with uh, getting wide recognition of organ harvesting is it's not visible uh the and and the records are not available uh the everything happens in, in a closed operating room you've got perpetrators and victims no witnesses uh the you get whistleblowers but whistleblowers only provide anecdotal information they, they don't provide you scope uh and uh, statistics the, the the hospital records are not available the government of China records are not available uh there is, I believe, some freedom of access information law in China, but you can imagine how that works. Uh, the uh, and, and whereas, I mean, a lot. I mean, in terms of scope, you you can take a satellite and take a picture of Xinjiang, and you can see the camps, but you can't see the organ harvesting in the camps. Uh, so uh, that that's a particular problem, and also. The um, I, I mean, this this was a, a problem, of course, with the Holocaust as well. I mean, we got the Nazi records, but it, it was very difficult to prosecute a lot of the perpetrators because the witnesses were all killed. You have a, a, a similar problem with forced labor. Some of the people can say, I was in forced labor, but nobody can get up and say, I was killed for my organs. So uh, it, 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 that that is a uh, continuing problem. I mean, you do get more visibility uh, with the Uyghurs, partly uh, because they're Muslim and everybody understands Islam and and the appreciation of what Falun Gong is, is not as widely uh, known. It's also partly because it's geographically isolated. So you can see there's a real concentration, whereas the Falun Gong were dispersed, they were everywhere. The the Gong are also, I, I mean, they're not ethnically distinct. Uh, they're, they're not linguistically distinct. They're not visually distinct, whereas, whereas the Uyghurs uh, are. Uh, so that makes it easier to, to pick up what's going on. But I, I mean, I, I've been uh, involved with some of the Uyghur human rights advocacy, and there is a tendency even within the Uyghur community to to gravitate towards the the, the most obvious, the more obviously noticeable human rights violations, uh, like torture, like forced labor, uh, where uh, or just arbitrary detention, where you could show it on TV, uh, and uh, it's, it's it's a lot easier to communicate visually than forced organ harvesting, even though they know about it because it's harder to explain. You can't get the visuals. Uh, and one of the things that I've been, you know, in my uh, involvement with the Uyghur community is to try to get them to focus on this organ harvesting, even though it may be a harder victimization to sell than some of the more obvious uh, victimization. We
0: well, make a good point with that because a lot of public outrage is driven by what the media reports. In general, I think the media has done a good job at, as you say, talking about some of those more uh, visually grabbing instances of persecution of Uyghurs. How do you feel the media has done covering organ harvesting and Falun Gong?
2: Well, I mean, the media is far from monolithic. Uh, uh, I would consider uh, you as part of the media, and you've done a great job. Thank you. I mean one of the problems with when you're dealing with media is you know you can get a story and then it disappears uh the question is if it's there one day what happens the next uh and, and the part of the problem with this story is even if you like we can produce a report and there's a lot of media about that report uh that when we did our press conference in uh 2006 with our initial report. I mean, you you can look it up in YouTube, and it's got a huge number of hits. But uh, we can't do that every day. We can't produce a report every day, Uh, and and that's uh, I would say a problem. I mean, it's I wouldn't blame the media for that. It's just the way the media functions. I mean, the news always has to be something new, Uh, and uh, you know, okay, they're killing uh, ten thousand or twenty thousand or hundred thousand people a year for their organs. And you produce a report on that. They write a story on it, and then you tell them the, the next day the, the same thing. They say, "Okay, what else is new?" Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, and and so I think that, that that's that's part of the problem. But there is, of course, I mean, with the media, to a certain extent, they're interested in what their readership or viewership or listenership is interested in, and and if people that they're communicating to. Don't care about what's happening in China because China is not where they are and uh, they don't know what Falun Gong is and the media uh, are going to react to that. And you do also get some media that are uh, got business interests in China uh, or want access to China for other reasons. I mean, China will evict reporters if they don't like the way they're reporting it. And for some people that matters to them having access to China so they'll curb or tailor the coverage in order to get access to China and so, so there's all these problems with it. now you mentioned
3: uh, that there's an issue of a lot of people not caring what happens in China and you brought that up earlier as well sort of on a on a personal note because you've been doing this for 15 years looking into organ harvesting but you you know you have no family in China you don't have the you know business or any interest there like Why have you dedicated such an enormous chunk of your life to dealing with this issue?
2: Well, I I, I would say, uh, first of all, it's it's not the only human rights issue I've been involved in in the last 15 years. And and, uh, also, uh, I was involved in many human rights issues before that. I, I wouldn't say it's just the last 15 years I've been dealing with human rights. I've been dealing with human rights my whole professional career. And the reason I'm so involved human rights is is basically because the holocaust uh the uh, and i mean again with the holocaust i wasn't affected none of my family was affected uh nobody i knew personally was affected but I, i had kind of this realization from a very early age that if the Axis powers, rather than the Allied powers, that won World War II. Neither I nor any other Jewish person would be alive today. And so I, I developed this kind of consciousness that it was important to do something about this. Uh, not that I could do anything about the Holocaust, but to try to learn, at least for myself, some lessons from the Holocaust and act in them. And one of them was bring uh, perpetrators to justice. Another was to protect refugees. A uh, third was to combat and fight with the hatred. But a fourth was to act on human rights violations wherever they occur because uh, i i think that one of the reasons the uh, holocaust occurred was not just that the nazis uh, the nazis of germany wanted to kill all the jews but people elsewhere didn't do that much about it uh, i i feel that i mean personally compelled to, to act as much as i i can uh for human rights violations with, with which i have no personal contact i i think that the Absence of personal contact isn't a reason for doing nothing. It's a reason for doing something, because what it does is it manifests the commonality, the universi- universality of humanity by jumping across uh, the, uh, the the linguistic, the cultural, the geographic, uh, the religious divide. Uh, what that demonstrates is is the unity of uh, humanity and the univers- universality of human rights. So it basically goes
0: back to what you said. Uh, was, was it Solon? You said the Greek philosopher. Then, yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah, it goes back to what he said. It has to, like, even for you, it 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 began because something was relatable to you. Mm. And so, at the end of the day, like these things need to somehow become relatable to the majority of people in the world. Not that it's something far off that doesn't affect them. So how 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 do well Solon asked it like what two three thousand years ago? How do how how do we do that?
2: Well, I, I mean, when you talk about killing uh, innocents for their organs, uh, I, I say to people, look, you can't wait for somebody uh, coming to kill you for your organs before you start protesting, because by then it's going to be way too late. Uh, if, if you, if you want to stop someone from killing you for your organs, start now and dealing with it when it's somewhere else. I mean, uh, the coronavirus, which you started asking about, is to a certain extent a, a metaphor. Uh, of, of, of the problems of human rights, because human rights violations spread, uh, and, and and we we've seen it with with uh, organ harvesting. I mean, it started uh, with the death penalty. Uh, it, it goes on to uh, Falun Gong. Then it's the Uyghurs, and it's not it's not going to end with the Uyghurs if we don't do anything about it. Uh, and and. The uh, and you know with the coronavirus, if we'd taken it seriously from the moment it surfaced, instead of as the Chinese did to repress it and for the rest of the world to ignore it, we wouldn't have this coronavirus problem. And, and so this is not a matter of somewhere else, somebody else doesn't matter. This is a matter of preservation of humanity. Period. And uh, with these violations, it's not just others at risk; we're all at risk.
0: When you when you tell people that, are they receptive to it? Do they actually make meaningful change in how they go about their lives
2: well obviously it depends i mean you know the, the, the there's a, a wide variety of humanity some are some aren't and as i said you know in the in the battle against human rights violations what you're dealing with is mitigation not elimination uh, i i mean if if you think or uh, that, that all you have to do is say the right thing and do the right thing and talk to enough people and all human rights violations will end forever. I I think you're going to be quickly disappointed and burnt out and leave, which is what I see all too often. Uh, And I I think you have to adjust yourself to the fact that uh, progress is going to be mitigated. And uh, and that's the only way to keep going, I think.
0: Well, I think you phrased it, really beautifully that that was very well said and i i guess the issue will be like there are people going to be watching this podcast i hope that is a message that they hear and it affects them in a way that makes them take action as well while also not getting burned out because as you say it's uh mitigation not elimination
2: okay good
3: well we can always just make jokes about organ harvesting to you know keep us lighthearted.
0: editor add in a cricket sound <laughs> maybe a tumbleweed uh well thank you for joining us uh like i i really admire that you've been keeping up the fight for human rights for your entire life that's that's i hope i have that kind of longevity
2: well i i hope for your sake you do too <laughs>
0: <laughs> that no one comes from my organs <laughs> That's a funny organ harvesting joke, Matt, that's Artists. how you do it. All right. Well, always a pleasure having you on. Take care and keep up the good fight. Uh, I hope you get more awards for, for your work.
2: Well, and I hope you have some more interviews. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. All right. Take care. And yes, thank you for inviting me. Well,
0: um, I guess that was hopeful in a way the fight will never, ever, ever be done or won but we can mitigate it to some degree. We, I feel like that
1: was just like a very realistic way to look at, you know, humanity. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, I feel like it's not a good like headline on a website to to sell it to people. Yeah, so what's a clickbaity way that we can that we can talk about this? What an ancient Greek philosopher knew about today.
2: <laughs>
0: what?
1: Do you think that's going to get people to click on it?
0: yeah like kind of a Nostradamus really... kinda okay, ooh, that do you even read ancient Greek philosophy, Shelley?
1: I mean, I know that stoicism is pretty popular in a certain corner of the internet, but <laughs> I don't know true. that like everybody's like, ooh, I want to know what ancient Greek philosophers said.,
0: mm, good point <laughs> well, anyways, I hope you were inspired by today's message uh yeah he, ma- he makes a good point we have to do something we have to have it figure out a way to make it relatable to people so it's not just something like "eh, it doesn't affect me like even for for david like he had that he had that connection with the holocaust and that kind of brings you bring it's it's something that sparks it his, his entire
3: you. career is like godwin's law
0: uh was that the thing about the cat in a box
1: you, think you mean of Schrodinger? Schrodinger's
0: cat Uh-huh no I saw that on Stargate. no it's it's that you know eventually oh
1: my gosh, that cat was so cute, Schrodinger.
0: yeah, yeah. and the guy didn't the alien didn't really understand why they put a cat in a box yeah i've I've been watching Stargate for the first time it's It's a joy if you I'm skip a fan. the bad episodes
1: yeah <laughs> you got to skip the bad I also episodes. recommend
0: that for Star Trek <laughs> as well. Skip the bad ones. And uh, that's our message of hope.
1: <laughs> skip the bad episodes.
0: Skip the bad episodes. Let's put that on a T-shirt. Thanks for watching China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell.
1: I'm Shelly John. And I'm Matt Gnaister.
0: And don't forget to skip the bad episodes. Every episode of China Unscripted is good.
1: <laughs> Just to be clear. Okay.